We're talking a little bit about that. We're going on in the book of Philemon, how to have a transformed perspective. Perspective is a view, a vista, the way we see our world. And everybody sitting here this morning has their own worldview, every one of us. Some of them might be similar. Some of them might be the same. Some of them might be on extreme ends of the continuum, but we all have one. When we come in and get in the boat with Jesus and accept him, we become, the Bible says, new creations. So the Holy Spirit comes in, and the whole process behind that is whatever worldview that we bought or brought into the kingdom, that the Holy Spirit changes that a little bit, that we, as I said before, that, that we might put on Holy Spirit-inspired glasses, that we might try to see the world as God sees it. He gives us a new set of values, a brand new worldview. You know, we talked last week about a, a changed heart, a changed course, and changed values. And all of our choices in life are shaped by what we believe. What we believe is real and true, right and wrong, good and beautiful, and what we see as evil. Our, our choices are shaped by our worldview. There are many different worldviews to choose from. To name a few, there's the communist worldview. Communists see things different than the free world. Anti-God, thus anti-Bible worldview, anti-church worldview, satanic worldview, which the devil promotes highly, the ISIS and the terrorist worldview. We're going to kill everybody. It's not like us. I could go on and on, and you kind of diff, get my drift. But the point I'm trying to make here is every worldview can be analyzed by the way it answers these three basic questions. And the first question is this, where did we come from and who are we? A worldview has to answer that. A lot of them are fuzzy. They don't know where we came from, so they make up stuff almost. But nonetheless, that's the first basic question. For the believer, it's creation in the beginning. God made the heavens and the earth. We know that. That's how we believe. Second basic question, what has gone wrong with the world? Why isn't it running smoothly? Why are people being this, that, and the other, being taken advantage, abused, on and on and on? Of course, for us, the believer... The answer to that is, what's wrong with this world? Well, it was the fall. You can take it, trace it back to Adam and Eve. Third basic question, what can we do to fix it? What can we do to fix what is broken in this world? And for us believers, uh, the answer is redemption. You can use these three questions to break down the inner logic of every belief system or philosophy that we encounter, every one of them. Events that happen to us in our life shape and challenge our perspective. How would you feel if you were kidnapped and bound and held hostage by a mass murderer on the run? That's exactly what happened to Ashley Smith a few years ago when she was abducted by Brian Nichols after he had killed four people escaping from uh, the Atlanta courthouse where he was on trial for rape. Perhaps you remember the story making headlines. What did she think about it? She told reporters, and I quote, I think God led me to, led him to my door. She report, reportedly read to Nichols from the purpose-driven life, and told him perhaps God's destiny was for him to go to prison and share the gospel with other inmates, which he did. How's that for a changed perspective? In, in the story we're looking at today, we've got, we've got Philemon, a slave owner who has had a slave that run away, started hanging out with Paul. Paul led him to Jesus, and now Paul is sending him back to his owner, who is he's his property. And he, he's having, he's trying to have a change of perspective. I believe that as Christians, we all need to have a transformed perspective. Romans 8, 6 says, in your sinful nature, 
if your sinful nature controls you, there is death. But if the Holy Spirit controls your mind, there is life and peace. So how can we have a change in the way we look at things? Here are three ways to have a transformed perspective. Number one is this. See God's hand in circumstances. Philemon 1, 10 through 16 is our text. Paul says, My plea is that you show kindness to Onesimus. I think of him as my own son because he became a believer as a result of my ministry here in prison. Onesimus hasn't been of much use to you in the past, but now he's very useful to both of us. I'm sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. So Paul, you can feel, you can sense that, that compassion in that, that I'm sending a piece of my heart back with this man. I, I love him that much. I have that much confidence in him that he has changed. I really wanted to keep him here with me since while I'm in these chains for preaching the good news, and he would have helped me on your behalf. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent. And I didn't want you to help because you were forced to, to do it, but because you wanted to. Perhaps you could think of it this way. Onesimus ran away for a little while so, he could, so you could have him back forever. He's no longer just a slave. He is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a slave and as a brother in the Lord. Paul asked Philemon to look at this in a different way, in a God-centered way. And the point is that Paul was maybe saying, maybe God let him run away so he could come to me and I could let him to Jesus and send him back to you. Not a slave only, but as a brother. Paul is calling here for a sort of godly optimism and recognizes in all things God is working out his sovereign, sovereign plan. Romans 8, 28, we, we've all heard this many, many times. And in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him. And boy, sometimes that's, that's hard to grasp for us because we, we, we got our own minds and we got our own thoughts and the way things that work out. And sometimes God works out things that is not the way that you and I would work it out. In spite of the fact that most of us here can quote that verse, all too often we approach the world with a sort of ungodly pessimism. You don't think so? How often do you complain? Is anybody here this morning, do they have any family members that you live with or whatever that you never hear complaining? Is there anybody that lives in a complaining-free household? Is there no hands to that effect? <laughs> you know how we are, and I'm not talking about complaining about gas prices or if they got your order messed up at McDonald's. I'm talking about sub substantive things like the circumstances of your life. It's just not... It's just not playing out like you thought. Or the way things are going at work, or about things in the church even. I, I, don't think you can, I don't think you can complain about these things if you have a healthy sense of providential optimism, a sense that God's working out a plan. And again, it goes back to it's his plan and not ours. Beyond that, Philippians 2, 13 through 15 states it plainly. For God is working in you, giving you the desire to obey him and the power to do what pleases him. That, that's coming from the Holy Spirit in our lives, if we listen to him. In everything you do, stay away from complaining and arguing so that no one can speak a word of blame against you. You are to live clean, innocent lives as children of God in a dark world full of crooked and perverse people. Let your lives shine brightly before them. Paul is saying to the Philippians to stop the drama, stop nitpicking and, and bickering. Not that any of us here would do that. I'm sure that always when you hear Scripture, it's always for somebody else, but... Uh, Complaining translates from a word that describes a bad attitude which expresses itself in constant grumbling. The Israelites constantly grumbled in the wilderness, and God judged them for it. 
Why is complaining and arguing so harmful? First, it's completely opposite to Christ's attitude in chapter 2 of Philippians 5 through 8 when the Scripture tells us to emulate Christ, to have the same mind as Christ, have the same attitude of Christ. And secondly, it hurts Christ's cause among unbelievers. If all people know about a church is it's full of people that gripe and complain and gossip, they get a bad impression of Christ and the gospel. Unbelievers then feel justified in criticizing other Christians. Uh, Julie Walkup sent me this little story uh, this week. It says, the light turned yellow just in front of a fella. He did the right thing and stopped at the crosswalk, even though he could have beaten the red light by accelerating through the intersection. Anybody ever do that in here to accelerate when you see the... Well, I have to admit that I've been guilty of that. The tailgating woman behind him was furious. As she slammed on her brakes and honked her horn, screaming in frustration, having missed her chance to get through the intersection. While still in mid-rant, she heard a tap on the window and looked up into the face of a very serious police officer. The officer ordered her to exit her car with her hands up. Handcuffed her. The officer then drove her to the police station where she was searched, fingerprinted, photographed, and placed in a holding cell. After a couple of hours, another policeman approached her cell and opened the door. She was escorted back to the booking desk where the arresting officer was waiting with her personal effects. He said, I'm very sorry for this mistake. You see, I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn, giving the guy in front of you that obscene gesture that you do with one finger and cursing at him. I noticed the what would Jesus do bumper sticker, the choose life license plate, holder and the follow me to Sunday school bumper sticker and the chrome plated Jesus fish emblem on the trunk. So naturally, I assumed you had stolen this car. <laughs> I, I hope that that doesn't apply to anybody in here, be honest with you, but uh, I think sometimes that uh, it might apply to Facebook pages. I don't, I'm not on Facebook, but I I hear things, whether they're true or not, but in spite of the fact that most of here can quote that verse all too often, we approach the world sometimes with a sort of ungodly pessimism, and it's, and it's not right. The third thing that happens, probably more churches have split from causes related to arguing and complaining than from hearsay, which hearsay which is wrong doctrine. You know, I've heard horror stories of people that leave church, that split churches, whatever, just because they're arguing and complaining and they can't get along. I have a theory that Philippians 2, 13 through 15 is the most widely ignored passage in the Bible. Either we have simply convinced ourselves that the complaining and arguing we do is not the kind that the Scripture is talking about, and what it really boils down to, if we really believe that God is working out His purposes in our lives, if it's linked to the command not to complain and argue, if we recognize God's in control, that God's in control of my home, in control of my church, then we realize ultimately the only one that we are arguing, complaining about is God Himself. In essence, we're saying, God, you're doing a lousy job here. You need to get with the program. But if we get this command right, this scripture is interesting because notice what it says about us. We are blameless and pure. That in the same thought James puts forth, if we could keep a leash on our tongues, we would be perfect. And if we could face the world without arguing, complaining, 
we, we would shine like stars in a crooked and perverse world where everyone else is doing what? They're arguing and complaining. If we would do what God asks and stop, then we'd stick out like stars in the night sky. That's pretty amazing to me. And people would see a, a vast difference in us. What do people complain about in your world, in our world, pretty much on a daily basis? The politics pretty much rises to the top. Sometimes people complain about their hair, global warming. I complain too much about getting old. Can people complain about money, the lack of, or they're up to their ears in debt? Being fat, slow internet, being hungry, jobs, foreigners stealing our jobs, school, church, weather. And on rare occasions, you might pick up a little tidbit of complaining about spouses. Nobody's ever heard that in here, have they? Nobody's ever complained about their spouse. I have heard rumors that sometimes that gets on Facebook. I don't know how that plays out. But, uh, and the list goes on and on and on. How do we manage not joining in the next time we're exposed to mass whining and complaining? We can only combat it with a changed perspective, a perspective that looks at God's hands in the circumstances of our lives. Second way to see the world with a transformed perspective, see God's work in people, as Paul did. First part of 16, verse 16 in Philemon. He is no longer just a slave. He is a beloved brother, especially to me. And, and in that, I think that's the, that's, the, the, that's the issue about growing up in a small community because we know everybody's dirt. We, we, we've known them since they've grown up. We knew them as children. We know when they got in trouble. It, it, it just blows me away that... I'm not going to tell that story, but anyhow... I get anonymous stuff sometimes, and uh, it just, I just can't hardly grasp it. Unless you're a baby or a little kid or unless you are an extremely unusual person, I've used this analogy before, but in our lives, there is a place like this with a curtain, and you open that up, and it's just stuff full of our skeletons. Now, some of these skeletons, maybe many of them, only God knows them, but I'll guarantee you that there's skeletons in your closet that the community knows about. And then when you come to Christ, people don't automatically forget that. It's just like here. He is no longer a slave. He is a beloved brother, especially to me. This man no longer has an alcohol problem. This lady over here does, has quit doing drugs. This woman here has finally got a grip on relationships and made one work. That, that's why we don't hear that. We hear what they did 20, 30, 40 years ago, and people can't let that die. I don't know why we are like that. It amazes me how critical sometimes we as believers are. It's easier to be critical than to give somebody the benefit of a doubt. Sad to say, in over 35 years as a pastor, I've seen church people drive new people off seeking truth about Jesus, snide comments or gossip. They don't, they're not in their clique they're not, they're, they're, they're not with their group. They don't dress like they do. They don't smell like they do. So we should not let them in, you see. You think that's far-fetched, but I'll tell you what, my friends, it is not. Tony Campolo, I, told this, I tell this story a lot. This is one of my favorite stories. He was preaching in Pennsylvania, and at the end of the service one night, he went to this little Baptist church, and he was in the back door because back then... Those days, the preacher would stand at the door and shake everybody's hands when they went out. And so a lady grabbed his hands and, and looked him in the eye, and she said, Pastor, 
your grammar in your prayer was atrocious. And he looked her back in the eye and says, I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> you know what? I don't see that here. I praise you and applaud you this morning as a loving, accepting family. If it happens, I don't know anything about it. But I see that, 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 that anyone can come in here and be accepted. And, and that's the way it should be. I can't change your life, but God can. And regardless of what we have brought in here with us, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would reach inside your heart and, and, and you see that you need to make a change, that you need to make a difference in your life. That's, that's always my prayer for you. But I applaud you for that. You put up with me for 18 years, so man, that's a blessing in itself. God bless you, Diane. It's sure good to see you with the control of my voice. Why don't you just turn me off once just to see what it sounds like, all right? I'm going to talk for... Deep down in her heart, she wished she could do that 24-7. And I have both my hearing aids in my Bible. That's why I showed that clip this morning. Man, unless you're hearing impaired, you don't get it. It's like Steve said, that wasn't a commercial for them. It was a commercial showing to me people reaching out and trying to help somebody that's handicapped in some way. I think we're all handicapped to a degree. When I became a Christian, I was a hippie, and I had real long hair, and what I think is crazy, I wore them jeans that was all tore out and everything, but I was the only one. No one else had them. And then I'd like to put star patches and all kinds of weird patches on them. But going into the church where Ray, my pastor, which is uh, Diane's brother-in-law, served, they took me in like that. And I know some of them looked at me funny. But that's what really got me on course with Christ is a bunch of people brought me in and accepted me, not for what I could become, but at that moment. You know, I, I think about that, and if they'd have run me off, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what would have happened in my life, but they, they loved me. And a few years after that, I was on the, on the council, on the leadership team, and we, Ray had us go around. We was doing communion just in that small group, and you'd tear off a piece of bread and turn to the person beside you and tell, tell them what you thought of them and say, I give you this bread in Jesus' name. And this one old guy who was, uh, you looked his picture up in Webster under Redneck, and not only one picture, they had like eight pictures of this guy. But anyhow, man, he turned <laughs> He tore that bread off and turned to me, and he thought for a while. He said, brother, I didn't think I could ever love a hippie. And he gave me that, you know, that bread. And that, oh, that was, that was kind of cool. Man, oh, man, he, oh, my goodness, he hated long hair. I mean, he just detested it, actually. So, well, that's what God can do. That is the point. That's the point behind this. Paul said, who are you to judge another man's servant? We need to make room for God to grow people in his time and recognize the changes that he is working by his transforming power. Let's face it, I did. I don't know about you. I brought some habits into the kingdom that weren't kosher with the church crowd, so to speak. Did I give it up immediately? Absolutely not. I should have. The only thing that I quit cold turkey was profanity. You know, you talk about people cuss like sailors or whatever. Uh, I, worked, I worked on the railroad, and I, I, I was in the Marine Corps, and I was around that a lot, and four-letter words was pretty much all they used. 
And I did it myself when I was working. But when I came to Christ, God, God uh, took that from me. And uh, it, I, I was grateful for that. But not everybody has done that because sometimes when we're working together, if somebody hits their finger, they don't say Jesus saves. I'll put it that way. <laughs> Jesus said that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. I, I think it's a hard time sometimes as we see people changing, fall back, and they go back to the mud, and then they'll come in here on Sunday morning, they got mud all over them. What do we do? I think we ought to help clean them up and tell them we love them and you'll do better next time. I, I, that's my philosophy of ministry, so to speak. Based on a true story, the movie Woodlawn tells a story about a spiritual transformation and how it affects others. In the racial t torn city of Birmingham, Alabama in 1973, Christ transformed some high school football players who came to Christ and who transformed uh, their perspective and caused Coach Tandy Gerard to give his life to Christ. In this clip, we see this coach showing up at church, and he expresses what he's talking about. I wanted to come here today because uh, five of my players are here. <clears throat> five of my players that have been mistreated time and again by their school and by their teammates. And I have not done enough to stop it. Now, at the beginning of this season, um, my team, almost my entire team, they gave themselves to love. Yes. I love that I didn't understand. I love that began to conquer hatred. And after the game on Friday, I went home and I prayed. Not that I really know how to do that. But I told God that I don't know if you're real. But I want, I want whatever my players have. I came here today because I believe. I believe and I want to be baptized. Now that is a change of perspective. Third way to see with the transformed perspective to see God's perfection in the outcome. Last part of verse 16. Now he will mean much more to you both as a slave and as a brother in the Lord. We need a perspective that through the eyes of faith sees what God has done and what he continues to do in the lives of people around us. I, I like miracles. I always said I wish I could do more than I do. <laughs> that I had the gift of healing that I could walk up to anybody that's ill and in the name of Jesus, be healed. And that disease or whatever is the problem is gone. But I've not been given that gift. But nonetheless, 
The miracles has changed lives. Today is what I see. We're not like we used to be, and people detect a little more love and compassion in us. I think it's good to look back from time to time to take stock of what God has done through circumstances that we didn't understand. That God has a better plan, a lot better than our own. Where is God's perfection? In Brooklyn, New York, Chush is a school that caters to learning disabled children. Some children remain in Chush for their entire school career while others can be mainstreamed into conventional schools. At, Chush, at a Chush fundraising dinner, the father of a Chush child delivered a speech that would never be forgotten by all who attended. After extolling the school and its dedicated staff, he cried out, Where is the perfection in my son Shea? Everything God does is done with perfection. But my child cannot understand things as other children do. My child cannot remember facts and figures as other children do. Where is God's perfection? The audience was shocked by the question, pain, pained by the father's anguish, still by the piercing query. I believe the father answered that when God brings a child like this into the world, the perfection that he seeks is in the way people react to this child. And then he told this story. He had picked his son up one day from school, and they were walking home, and they passed a sandlot where these other boys were, were playing baseball. And Shea looked at his dad, and he said, do you think I can play? Well, the dad stopped, and he walked over to one of the boys on the field, and Shea knew some of these boys, and they knew that he was handicapped. And, and uh, the father asked, he says, do you mind if Shea plays with you guys? And of course, the boy didn't look around and ask. He just made the decisions. He said, sure. So they gave him a glove and, and stuck him in center field. It was about the sixth inning or so, or the seventh, and they were behind uh, three runs. So uh, three up, three down, three up, three down. So it got to be the ninth inning, and they were losing by three at this point because um, that's where they were at. So it came to the bottom of this ninth. Bases loaded. And it was Shea's turn to bat. And the father was thinking, they will surely not let him bat because they're going to lose the game. He went up there. The pitcher on the other team noticed the whole situation and just lobbed it in so this boy could hit it. And he swung at it. He didn't know how to bat. He'd never hold a, held a bat before. So one of Shea's teammates come up behind him, grabbed that bat, and they waited for that next pitch. And that pitcher lobbed it in there. They hit a slow grounder to the pitcher. The pitcher picks, pitches it instead of throwing it to first base. He throwed it way over the pitcher's head out into, out into um, right field that went clear up to the fence. Run, Shea, run. The, 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 they were all hollering. He got the second, and he stopped the second. Uh, the right fielder had picked it up and did the same thing, only he threw it over the third baseman's head, and it went way, way out of bounds. And, and the rest of the team was saying, run, Shea, run. And he ran, he rounded third and said, well, go home, go home. And he crossed the plate, and 18 players picked him up on their shoulders, and he had, he had won the game with a grand slam home run. That day, said the father softly with tears now rolling down his face, those 18 boys reached their level of God's perfection. That's how he saw that. That perfection came is how people treated this handicapped child. Stories such as these should touch us, or they should. If they don't, we are 
have calloused hearts, actually. God's perfection is the way people react to spatial children. Here's a real short clip about a kid named Matt Zeisel. lives in St. Joel, Missouri. He has Down syndrome. If you've ever been around Down syndrome children, they're really loving. He loved football in a high school game. Both teams allowed him to score the touchdown. Here, here's what that looked like. It's, it's pretty cool to get my drift. what that young man was feeling at that time. Now, see, Dakota doesn't have to worry about that because he does, he makes touchdowns all the time. So, Stand with me if you would. This is going to be our benediction this morning. and I want us to, to read this out loud and really, really focus on these words. Say it with me. For our present troubles are quite small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us an immeasurably great glory that will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see right now. Rather, we look forward to what we have not yet seen. For the troubles we see now will soon be over, but the joys to come will last forever. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. I hope your perspective continues to change my brothers and my sisters because that's what it's about. I love you guys. Thank you.